when my uh, wife, Laura, saw this sign, this sign at a sale some time ago, she said, I got to get that sign. I got to get this one. It says no stumps. And she had to get it because we had this stretch. We had this two-year stretch where we became the uh, proud parents of about 12 stumps. And man, you know, if you have enough time or if you have enough money, stumps aren't a big deal. But if your time and money are limited, as is the case for almost all of us, and you have to deal with about 12 stumps in a two-year span, you quickly realize that one of your best friends is a sharp saw. Can I get an amen from my fellow lumberjacks out there? A sharp saw makes all the difference in the world. Um, Last week, we began digging into the book of the Bible, a book of the Bible. It's filled with a lot of real-life practical advice. And if you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to that book, Ecclesiastes. We're going to start with, in chapter 10, verse uh, 10, chapter 10, verse 10. But, um, but then we're going to spend most of our time in another section. But I want to I show you this verse about sharpening the saw. Talk, talk about as practical as things come. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. Each and every week, we keep up a stack of them there in the back. We'd love for you to, to take one home as a gift to you. Here it is. Ecclesiastes 10.10, you'll find things like this in the Bible. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use what? It takes more strength. But wisdom, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Boy, this is practical, practical stuff. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of three books of the Bible that are often referred to as wisdom literature. And one of the wisest pieces of advice that you'll ever get is this principle of sharpening the saw. If you have to slice up a bunch of stumps, it is worth your time to sharpen the saw on the front end. Otherwise, if you don't sharpen that saw, it is like trying to cut through that stump with a 20-pound really loud spork. It just doesn't work. But if your blade is sharp, all you need to do, all you need to do is to set Set that blade on top of the stump, and you will slice through that wood like Delvin Cook, slicing through the Packers defense this <laughs> afternoon, right? Amen. Amen. This principle, this principle of sharpening the saw, it is not limited. It is not limited to the world of wood. Wise people know one of the most important life hacks that there is is to apply that sharpen the saw principle to other areas of life. If we go to the next slide, I'll show you some examples of what we're talking about. You can apply this to, to sharpening the saw. You can apply this physically by getting enough exercise, sleep, eating right, stress management, things that can help your body to be healthier and stronger. You can apply this mentally, reading, visualizing, planning, reflecting. You can, you can sharpen your mind in such a way where you can more... more Um, with more strength, approach your life and your day. You can apply this socially and emotionally by investing in relationships and connecting deeply and giving and receiving care and tending to your heart. If we don't do these things, life is qualitatively different in a bad way, isn't it? If we neglect these things, everything else breaks down if we do. If we don't exercise our bodies, our muscles atrophy, stress builds up. And if you don't ever exercise, you just kind of feel right? When we neglect our minds, when we neglect our minds, we become less marketable. We become less able to navigate a complex, changing, nuanced world. And research is beginning to reveal when we don't invest in relationships, when we don't tend to our hearts, 
the resulting isolation and loneliness, it's worse than smoking a pack a day. They've researched this. It has that kind of effect on your life. Well, I'm working my way through a great book right now by this guy who's going to be at next year's Global Leadership Summit. And he puts it like this. He says, some priorities are vehicles to other ones. Some priorities are vehicles to other ones. Investing in our physical health, expanding our mental capacities, developing richer relationships. It can affect everything else that we do in countless positive ways. Which brings us to what we're going to talk about today. Inside your bulletin, there is a green notes insert. We'd love for you to take that out and to write this down. Are your recreation choices leading to recreation? Are your recreation choices leading to recreation? You know, and right now, we've got the makings of the perfect suburban sermon so far. Don't we? Because we threw our little proof text out there from Ecclesiastes 10.10, so we can trace the sharpen the saw context back to Scripture. Isn't that nice and convenient? We could then, from here on out, we could spend the rest of our time contrasting recreation with recreation. We could offer some action steps. We could start talking about whether or not we're we're going to, are we prioritizing activities that renew and restore and rejuvenate? Are we developing habits and rhythms that future you? Future you is going to thank present you for. I mean, we could do that. And then we could post it and you could share it. And suburban audiences would really resonate with it. But here's the problem with that plan. The problem is what the rest of Ecclesiastes says. And I, there's a place you can write this in your notes. If we spend the next 30 minutes only talking about sharpening the saw physically, mentally, socially, we're not being true to Ecclesiastes. Now, truth be told, before I started digging in the text, my original plan was to go more that suburban template. You know, because that's where a lot of times our suburban minds go. My original plan was to contrast the kind of entertainment today. That's what we're going to do in entertainment. Contrast the kind of entertainment that most people consume with true recreation. The kind that renews us and refreshes us and and helps us level up in life. You know, and and the, the beginning point, we can feel this, right? We know this. If you binge a bunch of shows on Netflix, compare how that feels with how it feels to do the renewal stuff, right? Think how different it feels after you've been up late, too late binging on on, on Netflix. Think how different that feels to getting in a great workout or getting in a, a walk or finishing a great book or earning a degree or restoring a car or completing an important project or spending an evening with great friends around great food and in a campfire. And, and, and that contrast is real. That contrast is important. And that's the direction I was going to go with this message. And you'll still see some of it in here. But when I actually pressed deeper into this amazing book, I realized I'd be misrepresenting Ecclesiastes if we stopped there. If we stopped there. Does Ecclesiastes advocate for sharpening the saw? Yes. We just saw that it does, right? No pun intended. And does Ecclesiastes take us much, much deeper than that? Yes, it does. Much deeper than that. The book of Ecclesiastes, it is unflinchingly honest. And it wasn't lost on me how many of you came up to me last week down there when it was raining on our parade. It was raining on our parade. And so many of you in the rain came up with big smiles on your face saying, I love Ecclesiastes. I love it. 
And what is so um, vivid about that and so appropriate about that is the book of Ecclesiastes is the kind of book that helps us smile in the rain. It, it makes total sense that people are saying, in the rain, I love Ecclesiastes, with a smile on their face, because that's what Ecclesiastes can do. It can help us. It can help us go there, because it's real, it's raw, and as it reflects on life as it is, it helps blow up the illusion of life as we want it to be. Ecclesiastes embraces principles like sharpening the saw, while, while at the same time reminding us that control is an illusion. Can I get an amen to that? Control is ultimately an illusion if we're the ones trying to control. Okay, let me give you a really quick recap in case you weren't here last week, and then we're going to look at our new content. So here's a quick recap. There are two voices. There are two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the voice of the author. The author sets it up in verse 1, then the author steps back and lets the teacher, the teacher, do the rest until the very end. Then the author comes back and wraps things up with a few comments of his own. Here's how the teacher, when the teacher opens and when the teacher closes, take a look, we'll put this up on the screen. Here's how the teacher opens and closes his rant. Hevel, Hevel, he says. What is Hevel? Everything. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not here. Everything is Hevel. Hevel, Hevel. Everything is Hevel. That's how he opens it up. That's how he closes it. And your Bible probably doesn't use the word Hevel unless there's footnotes at the bottom. Most Bibles use words like meaningless or vanity. And that's because there's no English word that easily captures what the teacher was trying to communicate in the original Hebrew. And then that brings us there. If we go to the next slide here, this Hebrew word hevel, this Hebrew word hevel, it means vapor, or it means breath, or it means smoke. And it's all over Ecclesiastes, about 40 times, about 40 times it's in there. And that is such powerful imagery when you apply it to life. The teacher is saying, life is like vapor. Life is like smoke, he says. Life is constantly shaped and then reshaped by countless factors. It can be confusing. It can be disorienting. And it may look solid, but just when you think you've got life figured out and you try to grab a hold of it, ah, it slips through your fingers, right? Okay, so that's a really quick overview of the book as a whole. For the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to drill down into smaller sections of Ecclesiastes. Today, we're going to focus primarily on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you want to open up to that, let's, uh, let's dig in and let's do a little bit of a deeper drill down into a smaller section of Ecclesiastes and see what we can learn here. All right, so the first verse we're going to look at are 1 and 2, and then we'll, look at, and we'll talk about those. So here's the teacher now. After saying, have a have everything's have saying a little bit more. Teacher says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? All right. So the teacher says to his soul, he speaks to his own heart. He says, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you. And so begins the teacher's experiment to see where hedonism takes him. Hedonism. Hedonism is a word that describes putting yourself at center. It's the pursuit of self-gratification. It's the partaking of self-indulgence. Hedonism is a philosophy of life that puts the satisfaction of desires at the top of your priority list. And if we're reading this in Hebrew, what's really interesting is you see the phrase for myself repeated nine times just in verses four through nine. 
And that's unfortunate that many of our English Bibles try to say, let's make this, let's not just repeat words the same because didn't they teach us that, right, in, in uh, English class, right? Don't always use the same phrases. It's unfortunate that our English Bibles don't put that because that's on purpose. This test, he's like, I'm going to test for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. Nine times he says that. He's like, I just, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to try to just put myself at the center of the universe. The teacher makes life all about him. And just two verses into his experiment, the results are less than desirable. After trying to find substance in joy and substance in laughter, in verses 1 through 2, he finds only hevel. So he turns his attention elsewhere. Verse 3, I searched my heart. I searched my heart to cheer, it says, my body with wine. With wine. That doesn't work either. So he tries something more constructive. Literally constructive. Verses 4 through 6 says this. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Wow, that's too bad, right? The teacher has almost unlimited resources, we find out here. And with them, he's able to build houses, plural. For who? For himself. He's able to plant vineyards, plural. For who? Himself. And gardens and parks, plural. For who? Himself. But none of that is enough. None of it's enough. Verses 7 through 8 says this. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, this section right here was hard to dig into. And not hard in the sense that it was hard to to find commentaries and saying, here's what this meant in the original text and all that. It was easy to find that. I meant this was hard when you actually dig into what he's saying. From a literary standpoint, the teacher is grouping people with property here. He's grouping people with property. He, He links slaves with herds. He links the acquisition of musicians with the acquisition of silver and gold. And the worst part, I I wrestled within even sharing this because it's just so crass. That word that's that's, um, that's translated in our Bible as concubines, as one word concubines, or or harem maybe in, in your translation, it's not one word, it's two words. It's two words. And it's two words that are really hard to, to, to translate but those who really wrestled with that and tried to go there as best they could, they were in agreement with instead of one word, concubine or harem, it's really two words. The best equivalent you have in English is breast and breasts. That's what he reduces women to. That's what he reduces women to in this. And if the teacher is indeed King Solomon, King Solomon had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines, we read elsewhere. Well, the teacher, the teacher is taking excess to the excess, even if it means people are exploited along the way. He continues on. He goes, I became great, if you can call that great, right? 
I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart, I kept from, let's see, I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. That word hevel. All was Hevel and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The Hebrew verb translated in verse 11 as consider is interesting. When he says, I considered, what that word means more literally is to face, to turn my face towards. I put my face towards all these things that people chase after. I put my face towards them, and I found them wanting. The teacher had gone all in on seeking to fill self-centered desires, but it was never enough. Here's what he discovered. No shockers here. There's a place to write this in your notes. Hedonism is what? Hevel. Hedonism is hevel. You can, you can go down the path that he went down. You won't have as many resources to go as far as he did. You can look his experiment. You're going to find the hedonism is hevel. Now, there should be no surprises there coming from a preacher, right? Very few people are shocked to see that the Bible warns against racing down the path of self-centered living. But something that caught many of us by surprise, we've commented on this here before, especially later in life, is the discovery that God's not anti-fun. He wants us to flourish. And so many of the boundaries he puts in place, they're there to protect us from things that we would later regret. In fact, all of them are there. Ecclesiastes 11.9 says this, Rejoice! You know, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and with the sight in your eyes. Before this passage comes, we read that God put eternity in eternity eternity in our hearts. Don't stop with the superficial desires. Go for those deeper longings, the deeper longings, and see where they lead you. Don't settle for lesser things if you want to experience deeper and richer forms of joy. Let your deepest longings lead you home. Many of us can testify to this next slide. When we deify our desires, disappointment is guaranteed. Can I get an amen to that? When we deify desires, disappointment is guaranteed. If you prioritize lesser pursuits, when they are tested, they are found wanting. Well, this is certainly true when it comes to entertainment. The way most people consume TV and videos and games, it's the antithesis. It's the antithesis of recreation. These things, they can fool us the same ways that drugs do where we feel more relaxed when we consume entertainment and we feel less stressed. But what do we have at the end of it? Research is raising all kinds of red flags. And we won't talk about this too much because we've talked about this before and you can find this everywhere. In fact, I put a link in your notes, at the bottom of your notes, to a series that we did in uh, 2017 called Screen Time. I'll put that link also in the ECC mail this week so you can link back to that where we pressed into that topic more deeply. It's a topic that we'll circle back to again in the future when we huddle up with parents at uh, the teen kickoff. Number one, when I said, what are the challenges you're facing? Number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten probably were about screens, right, in media. 
Media consumption is linked with anxiety and depression, sleep issues, and a host of physical problems, isolation, loneliness, bullying, suicide. People are becoming less able to think deeply and respond thoughtfully and to cope with the demands of reality. Ecclesiastes says this in 9.12 about pursuits like these, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Chapter 7 has a similar verse to this, and the language is even stronger. In chapter 7, it says that those snares and nets, if you're trapped in them, that can be more bitter than death to be trapped in those nets. Now, again, this morning, my original plan was to say, okay, let's keep pressing into that. Let's compare that kind of entertainment with true recreation. But Ecclesiastes takes us deeper. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's an example of that. And it comes immediately where we left off in chapter 2. If we were to keep reading beyond where we left off, beyond chapter 12 or verse 12, and just keep reading, this comes right after that. After the teacher's experiment in hedonism went down in flames, he compares wisdom and folly. He says, okay, wisdom, you can't argue with wisdom. Let's do it. Let's compare wisdom and folly. Let's compare wisdom and foolishness. And look where he lands. Look where he lands. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly. No surprises. As there is more gain in light than darkness. A wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, and yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Pause. The teacher, the teacher, the teacher clearly clearly sees that wisdom is better than folly. So don't hear that none of this matters, right? Wisdom is better than foolishness. When given the choice between wisdom and foolishness, choose wisdom 10 out of 10 times, all right? It is, it's the way to go. But here's where the teacher struggles. Here's where the teacher wrestles. He wrestles, look at picking up, uh, continuing on, verse 15. Then I said in my heart, says the teacher, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, this is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. We're going to drill deeper down in this because this guy really wants recognition. You see that throughout Ecclesiastes, and that's a big issue, big deal. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But here's what I want to focus in now. Should we walk in wisdom? Absolutely. A life of wisdom is far superior to a life of foolishness. So sharpen your saw, invest your time wisely, because hedonism is hevel. But here's the reality that the teacher looks in the face. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Hedonism is hevel, and so is what? Everything else, everything else that time or chance can undo. Hedonism is hevel, no surprises there. Where Ecclesiastes takes us is deeper. It says, so is everything else that time or chance can undo. I am a huge fan. Huge fan of the sharpening the soft principle. I've been integrating it into my life ever since I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People back in 1991. But, 
book of Ecclesiastes reminds you of this. You can sharpen that saw, cut down that tree, and that tree might fall on you. Right? That's how life is. That's how life is. Hevel, hevel. If time or if chance can undo it, it's hevel. If we're going to be true to Ecclesiastes, the emphasis in Ecclesiastes is 10% make wise choices, 90%. If your choices are limited to this world, it's hevel. It's hevel. Wise decision-making can only take you so far. You can create the best workout plan on the planet. You can eat right. You can sleep right. You can exercise right. But you're not going to win the battle against time. Can I get an amen to my 40-plus brothers and sisters? Amen. You just can't. You can sharpen your intellect to the point where Einstein would come to you for advice if he were still alive. You ever had to deal with dementia? It can take it all away. It can take it all away. And you can invest in relationships. You should invest in relationships. And death is a thief, isn't it? If your sights don't extend beyond the horizons of your mortality... Everything is heaven. Let me say that one again. If your sights don't extend beyond the horizons of your mortality, everything is heaven. Let me give you some good news. If you keep exploring other corners of the Old Testament, and it's right there all over the place in the New, we discover this. We were meant for more. That's one of the reasons why there's such discontent, why we're not okay with Hevel being everywhere, right? Because we were created for more. Eternity is in our hearts. Take care of your body. It's the wise thing to do, but you're meant for more. Take care of your mind. It is the wise thing to do, but you're meant for more. Let go of trying to accumulate likes and followers because you're meant for more. I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis for a while. Here's C.S. Lewis on this. He says, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy, for joy. In that book I referenced earlier, the author, who's a Christian, he said this. Next slide. He says, your priority is the thing you're doing now. Push back against that if you will, but there's a lot of truth to that. Your priority is the thing you're doing now. Remember that when you pick up the remote. Remember that when you turn your focus to your device. And that brings us to our next point. There's a place to write this down. If you want to experience more than Hevel, prioritize recreational investments that foster what the wisdom literature says, the fear of the Lord. Foster that. Foster the fear of the Lord. Last week we talked about how in the Bible's wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord's not terror. It's about having a sense of awe and wonder and reverence. In the Old Testament, we see Hevel is not one of God's character attributes. Our trust in him is compared to a sure foundation, a mighty fortress. The Apostle Paul warned us of what it would be like in the last days. He wrote these words to a young man named Timothy. He says, in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. How tragic is that? How tragic is that? 
to have the appearance of something that is not true. Denying its power. One of the things I'm working on personally then, when it comes to entertainment, is to have a really, really, really low personal tolerance for entertainment that trivializes God's name, trivializes who he is, that, that says things about Jesus that are used in a disrespectful way, excuse me, or promotes things he forbids. Let's not diminish the eternal by elevating the things that are passing. Paul wrote this in an earlier letter to Timothy. Look at how it builds on what the teacher taught us in Ecclesiastes and takes it further. Paul writes to this young man. He's coaching, mentoring in the faith. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself for what? Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, not because all's hevel, but because we have our hope set in the living God. That's got to get an amen from somebody. All right, amen. I mean, look at how the language shifts here in the New Testament. The language is not now hevel, hevel, everything's hevel. The language is shifting to something we can't hang on to because we're looking at and faced with the reality of one who claimed, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And he did. One whose life could have looked meaningless if he stayed in the grave, but it wasn't meaningless. It proved to have the most meaning of all as he rose again. Training in godliness is not helpful. It is valuable, we just read, in every way. Holding promise not only in this life like wisdom does, like sharpening the saw does, but also in the life to come. In the life to come. This saying is trustworthy, and it is to this end that we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. I recently read, that the average American watches 34 hours of TV or videos in a week. 34. That's something like nine years of an average life. You know, we have a family of four. That would be 136 hours a week. That'd be the equivalent of about 30 years. That's a whole lot of time invested in chasing the wind, isn't it? Those of you who do analysis of these types of things, think about the opportunity cost right there. Imagine what life could be like if we began investing even a portion of that time in better things, in ways that helped us to see as God sees. There's one last blank on today's note page. Here it is. How are you sharpening that spiritual saw? How are you sharpening that one? If you're not sure what that means, if you're not sure what that looks like, I'm going to point you to a couple of helpful resources. We actually had a short series that we devoted to this back in 2015. We have a link here at the bottom of your notes. I'll also send that link in the ECC mail that takes this idea and drills down deeper into it. There's a book that we reference in that series. It's uh, this one. It's called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. Outstanding book. One of the things that he does a great job of that I haven't seen other people do is he really presses into how we're not all the same. And for some of us, that sharpening the saw is going to look different. For some of us, if we want to sharpen our spiritual saw, it is get outside. 
and see the God of creation at work. For some of us, it's get with other people and encounter him in those conversations. For some of us, we can get into a great book that helps us to understand God, and we meet him in there. There's different pathways that can help us sharpen the saw based on who God created us as. You know, another way, in addition to those that we just described there, to sharpen all four of your saws is a great retreat. That's why we invest so much time and energy into them. We've got three good ones coming up, really good ones. High school, middle school, men. After those are done, we're going to have some for women. We're going to have some for our preteeners. They can sharpen all of them because if they're done right, they help us physically, mentally, socially, spiritually. When we're intentionable, intentionable? When we're intentional, when we're intentional about sharpening the saw in all four areas that we've been talking about, life is better. And it's better even when things aren't going according to our plans. It's like the songs we sang earlier. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me. Can you imagine having the kind of faith that can sincerely say, let me be singing when the evening comes. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near, my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and forevermore. When, when that becomes anchored in your soul, it changes everything, doesn't it? And when things don't go as we think they should, we can see that God is still there. Let me close with this story here. I opened up this sign, the sign that says, No Stumps. The worst day of that two-year stump stretch was a Sunday afternoon. Some of you actually were a part of it. A Sunday afternoon when two huge oaks came crashing down on our front yard on a beautiful sunny day. No wind. Two, two trees come crashing down, big oak trees. And there were three more that were in danger of falling too. And one of them was looking at falling on our house. So <laughs> sprang into action. Before the day was done, we had five huge oak trees covering our lawn, blocking our driveway, and obstructing traffic in the street. That day, I was thankful. I was thankful that Bice Wingers was stocked up with sharp, new chainsaw blades. I was thankful for people that had wisdom, who had sharp minds, who knew how to get that tree that was going to fall in our house to fall away from our house. I was thankful that I had physical reserves to spend the next two days sawing and splitting and stacking wood. I was thankful for family and friends and neighbors who care about our family and came to help. But most of all, most of all, I was thankful for this little tiny log. And it's going to be hard to see from the back, and you can come up and see it in the, when we're done here, but I was thankful for this law, this little log, a reminder that God meets us in the midst of our broken, fallen world where things don't always work out as we plan and our strength will ultimately fail us and those that we love will leave their bodies behind because right in the thick of things, right in the midst of when all five trees were down and, all, and, and there was chaos everywhere and I'm thinking, how in the world is, are we going to make sense out of this and why did this happen and all that? I look over at a pile of logs that people had stacked. And I thought for sure that, Tim, that you had drawn this like with a Sharpie or something like that. Again, it's hard to see from the back. You want to put up a slide? We tried to, that's my recreation of what you see on, on here. I'm seeing a little smiley face looking right at me. 
and it's hard because this was years old. It's, it's faded. It was even more vivid than this, you know. It was my kind of my, whatever, Virgin Mary in the toast moment or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the more that you press into these things like we're talking about, the more you have those moments, right? Where you're reminded that God is with you in things, right? He's there in the midst of it. He's not caught by surprise. And even though we don't understand why things happen, we can meet him in the midst. And I can say that with authority because this is trivial compared to some of the other things, you know, that myself, others that we've been through, right? And how beautiful is it that in those moments when it is confusing, it feels like all is hevel. Why did I invest in this? Why, did, why, does it, why does life even matter when we can meet God in it? Amen. We want that for all of you. For all of you. To have that assurance. An assurance that isn't just grounded in wishful thinking. Assurance that is grounded in an event that happened in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'd love for you to meet him today. To order our lives and our loves around seeking him. To allow him to rewrite our story. To allow him to help us discover a life that truly satisfies. To allow him to open our eyes and ignite our souls. To help foster a relationship where we're listening to the spirit. And the spirit can help us to recognize when we are chasing the wind. That voice that will invite us to come home and welcome us when we do. So to that end, let's pray as the worship band comes forward and seals this time with a song. Father, thank you. Thank you that you did so many things through the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the many was how we can see a life where it appears as though all was hevel, as his disciples ran away, as the people he came to save nailed him to a cross. Thank you that we could see on that third day and in the centuries that followed. It was the opposite of heaven. It was the way where you could show your world the extent of your love. It was the way in which your justice and your mercy could be fully actualized. It was a way in which upon reflection and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, it could draw all people unto you. Father, help us as we continue to press in, maybe onto this topic. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are consuming more hevel, more entertainment than they should. Lord, graciously but firmly direct and guide us as we try to fill our days with things that bring life. And as we press in in the rest of this series, expose other myths that we chase after and help us to anchor, anchor to a life that holds promise not just in the days to come, but forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.